about it, and then we're live in just a moment. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. I have two for the price of one, two great guests today, and it's really a follow-up to yesterday's show about a wonderful new book called Plant Powered Protein. And today I have two of the three authors. Authors Yesterday I had Vasanta Molina on, and I'll link to that show below. But today I have mother and son combination RD, plant-based RD, Brenda Davis, and her son, Corey Davis. This will be his first time on the show. Please welcome them both. Hello. What, a, what an accomplishment to write a book with a family member. Oh, it was just a joy. <laughs> yes, it sure was. Well, well, Brenda, I think it, at least to my audience and probably in the plant-based world, you need no introduction, but I'm not sure everyone knows who Corey is. I only know of him by way of you and a story you used to tell about when he was a little boy going to McDonald's, finding out for the first time that hamburgers were actually made of cows. I don't know if that's <laughs> embarrassing to him or he wants to share that, but welcome, Corey. And tell us a little bit about yourself, how you came to write this book with your mom and how you even got into this lifestyle in the first place. Oh, well, thanks so much, AJ. You know, I've been born and raised a vegetarian and went vegan in my early teens. Uh, and I've been an animal rights advocate and environmentalist for as long as I can remember, ever since that story. And I love that story so much of <laughs> finding out that burgers were made from cows. What what a disillusioning moment for me. It was really <laughs> a life-changing moment that... Mm -hmm altered the trajectory of where my life was going. Do you remember um, how old you were at the time? I was three years old. Oh, three. That's time. really even young because, I mean, think about it. Kids aren't really told where their meat comes from, and we don't even name meat the name. I mean, once in a while we say fish or lamb, but for the most part, you know, burger, hamburger. I mean, that it doesn't even indicate where it's coming from. That's right. Yeah. And so, yeah, it made it clear for me. Uh, since then, you know, I've been working in environmental work for over a decade in natural resource management. I've been doing animal rights advocacy since I was a teenager on the CARE Tour, the Compassion for Animals Road Expedition with Mom and Anthony Marr. Been volunteering with TRACS, the Responsible Animal Care Society, when I was a teenager. So it's always been a big part of my life. And now I'm a professional agrologist. Um, oh, what a just a oh, professional what? agrologist. <laughs> okay, which, you're gonna have to explain that. I've never sure. heard of that before. Professional <laughs> agrologists work in food. So we use natural sciences to inform food production and reclamation, environmental conservation of lands or aquatic habitat that produces food. Right now, I'm currently in my day job, I work on the regulatory side of thing. But in my off time, I like to do research <clears throat> and public outreach on those topics. And that's what led me to writing the book with mom. It's been a huge passion of mine, the environmental aspect of the food we eat. And I'm on a mission to reduce my impact. And I think food is one of the biggest impact decisions a person can make. You know, it's interesting, Corey, because, you know, when I went vegan almost 50 years ago, it was purely for ethical reasons. And then around the early 2000s, when Forks Over Knives came out, people were going vegan for their own personal health. But now the planet is is a thing, especially I noticed with younger people that may not even have been interested in the ethics or the health. Agreed 100%. So now it's it's amazing. When I was growing up, there was very, very few vegetarians. I was always the outsider in that sense. And of course, food is such a powerful source of cultural pride that everybody loves to share, right? But now, you know, it's so common to have plant-based options when you go to your friend's houses. I, I rarely have to even mention that I'm a vegan uh, when I go because there's always something. And, you know, I just the other day, I realized I, I'm new to this neighborhood in Courtney, British Columbia. But just the other day, I went out and saw my neighbor. He's wearing a shirt. Don't ask me about my protein. I won't ask you about your cholesterol. Oh, I love that hey. shirt. Yeah, found out him and his whole family there are vegan. Uh, so really nice to be in this this kind of community. The world's changing so fast. Yeah, absolutely. Why do you think that animal agriculture needs to be included in a discussion about climate change? 
Well, I'll tell I'll tell you a story. When I was a student at a at university in environmental sciences, we had to calculate our carbon footprint and submit it to our professor it as an assignment. So it, as it turned out, I had the lowest carbon footprint in my class. And one student with a higher footprint protested, said, but he drives and I ride my bike. Now I, I always ride my bike now. I ride my bike to work, to the gym, to go get <laughs> groceries. But the professor looked at him and he looked at me. And he said, it's because he doesn't eat meat. And animal agriculture is a significant emitter, often overlooked in the climate change discourse. The impact, and I think at a minimum, is similar to that of all the emissions coming from the tailpipes of planes, trains, and automobiles, and boats. So as much as we hear the call to ride your bike, walk, fly, or fly less, buy local, buy hybrid, car share, if we're being rational about this, uh, we should hear with that same level of passion and vigor, eat less meat. Yeah, Or no, preferably no meat, but I agree. Or no it. meat, yes. So Brenda, <laughs> in Plant Powered Protein, which I think is like your millionth book with Visanto <laughs> or something like that. 13, you, 13. <laughs> you talk about what the advantages are to choosing plant-based protein over animal protein sources. Can you talk about what some of them are other than the environmental effect? Yeah, to, to me, the evidence is just so crystal clear. Protein-rich plant foods provide a more healthful, a more ecologically sustainable, and a kinder way of providing protein to a very rapidly growing human population. And in my opinion, it just makes no sense to source protein from animals when it's not only unnecessary, but it hurts humans. It's one of the biggest contributors to climate change and environmental degradation. And it causes so much suffering for billions of animals every year who are raised and slaughtered for food. And to me, I, I just think choosing plant protein sources is the least we can do as conscious human beings. Thank you. So Corey, when it comes to animal protein sources or even just protein sources in general, which ones have the highest greenhouse gas emissions, which have the lowest? Sure. Well, the ruminant animals, cattle, sheep, and lamb, that, that all has the highest by far in dairy products as well as right up there with the highest footprint. Of course, they emit methane. And some of the lowest emitters of greenhouse gas emissions are peas, beans, pulses, uh, soy, so tofu. Um, tofu emits about 25 times less emissions than beef uh, when we're talking per gram of protein, about 31 times less than beef if you're talking per kilogram. Well, per kilogram, you know, lentils reduces, if, if you're doing a comparative analysis between beef and lentils, for example, it's a 98% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by choosing lentils. I mean, the relative reduction there is massive if you want to transition from a meatloaf to a lentil loaf. And to put that into comparison, I say animal agriculture is at a minimum comparable to all transportation. If you're switching from a hybrid car or to a hybrid car, that's about a 46% reduction in emissions. Switching from beef to lentils in a, in a loaf is 98% reduction. So yeah. the scale there is massive. Yep. Thank you. You know, Brenda, I'm sure you've been vegan as long as me or longer. And I'm sure you get this question a lot and you address it in the book. Where, if you don't eat animals, where are you getting your protein? <laughs> it sure is the number one question that all plant eaters <laughs> seem to get. Um, it's so predictable because in our, in our culture, we, we've literally been brainwashed to believe that the only real sources of protein are animal products. And the reality is when somebody asks me that, I just simply answer, I get it from plants. Plants like beans and lentils and seeds and grains and you know all, all plant foods provide protein. And if time permits and they're open to hearing more, I usually explain to them what the RDA for protein actually is or the recommended dietary allowance. You know, it averages 46 grams for women, 56 for men. And most people think it's like a hundred or more. So they're surprised at that. And, and you know, the largest study that, that we have looking at protein intakes of similar health conscious individuals 
reported 75 grams a day for omnivores. Now that's way less than the average Western diet eater. This is, you know, health conscious individuals who are Adventist. It was 73 grams a day for PESCO, 71 for lacto-ovo and 71 for vegans. So, you know, we were all well above uh, what's recommended. And I think a lot of people just don't, don't really realize that. Wow, that's something. Corey, which animal proteins require the less amount of land and, and the most amount of land? And same thing for plants. Like, is there a hierarchy? Not that I want anyone to ever eat animals, but, you know. Yeah, well, half of the habitable land on planet Earth is used for agriculture. It is the most extensive land use in the world. And of that half, about 75% is used for animal agriculture, which only which only provides about 18% of the calories consumed. Beef and lamb, the grazing animals, use the most amount of land by far. And most of this is pasture land, so it's not crop land. Pasture is land that animals use to graze, to forage for grass. And it's one of two things. It's often land that's been converted to pasture, such as forest that's been cleared of trees, which so it was a carbon sink and now it's a carbon source or it's grasslands some of the most endangered threatened ecologically valuable misunderstood ecosystems on planet earth um, and they're fed those animals who graze that land also use cropland they're fed brains um even prior to the feedlot, it's called creep feeding. You want to introduce grains into their diet so it's more acceptable when they enter the feedlot. We often think about these small family farms where, with cattle grazing in this picturesque landscape, but that's only one step in the supply chain because after that, they go to the feedlot. I live here in British Columbia where 90% of our cattle get auctioned off in the fall and end up at only two feedlots in Alberta. Some end up in the United States and elsewhere as well. Um, so certainly livestock use the most. In terms of the lease, I mean, soy milk, uh, soybeans is really good. Peas, you can produce a lot with peas. Peas are such a good sustainable source of protein if you want to minimize your land print, but also your water print, your greenhouse gas emissions print, and uh, even water pollution print. Wow. I'm just curious what both of you think about lab-grown meat, both nutritionally and environmentally. Do you want me to start, Corey? <laughs> well, I've been I, hearing, I've been hearing of late that it may be the case that lab-grown meat will be intensive in greenhouse gas emissions. So I don't know what it will look like in the future as the technology evolves, but right now it does look like it might have quite a greenhouse gas emitting print. In terms of land use, I would I would suspect that it would be much smaller than it is today. So it depends on how you're weighing the different kinds of environmental impacts. I'll yeah. let you take it. Yeah. And, and in my opinion, of course, if it's lab grown, uh, it's going to be very similar. The flesh produced is going to be similar nutritionally to the flesh that you would get from animals that are that are raised and slaughtered for food. However, they are making some adjustments to try to produce lower fat, lower saturated fat, so they can make some of those adjustments. But, but in my view, uh, even though this isn't going to be a, a health food by any stretch of the imagination, it's still, you know, often red meat and red meat has a, a ton of, of potential negative properties from the new 5GC, the TMAO production, the saturated fat, the cholesterol, the heme iron and so on and so on. But as an animal rights uh, advocate, I, I, I celebrate anything that closes the doors of slaughterhouses. And if, if, if we could raise meat that way, instead of torturing billions of animals every year, I'm putting on my party hat, even if I don't eat the stuff myself. Great. Will you put on your party hat, Corey? You bet I would. You bet I would. 
that's great. You know, Brenda, maybe you could talk about, and I'm sure, and you, I mean, I know I've read the book, but not everybody has, which is why there's a link below in both the chat and the show notes. You can pick up this great book with beautiful pictures and beautiful recipes. Can you talk a little bit about if and how protein needs change, whether one is on a vegan diet or not from the cradle to the grave? Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting if you look at the RDA or the recommended dietary allowance for protein, what you see is that during infancy, you start out needing about 1.5 grams per kilogram, 1.52 to be exact, but, but per kilogram body weight. And that declines to about 1.2 during the last second half of the first year of life. And then it goes down to about one, it's 1.05 for toddlers and 0.95 for children up to the age of 13. And then after that, it's 0.85 for, for teenagers. And just to clarify, um, a kilogram is 2.2 pounds. And then um, uh, for adults, it's about 0.8 grams per kilogram uh, body weight. Now it does go up to 1.1 uh, during pregnancy and 1.3 during lactation. And there is some discussion about needs being somewhat higher for seniors as well, because their ability to absorb protein from uh, food, it, it declines because they're not producing as, as many enzymes and acids and so forth. And so there are a lot of authorities now saying one to 1.3 uh, for seniors And some countries actually have adopted a plus 25% for seniors because of that. Um, and it's really to reduce the risk of sarcopenia, you know, muscle wasting and uh, maintain bone density and all of those kinds of things. So, so that's kind of how we go with, with our needs. And of course, athletes need a little bit more, um, 1.2 to two is, is usually what athletes are told to get. And that we're not talking about people that exercise for an hour a day, like, like we do, but you know, we're talking about people that are competitive athletes and they do need more, but they also eat more. So it's, it's pretty easy for them to meet their, their requirements for protein. But is animal, is plant-based protein really as good? Is as high quality as animal protein? And you can address it nutritionally, Brenda and Corey, you can address it in your environmental aspects. Yeah, well, from a nutritional uh, standpoint, um, you know, is it as good? Well, it, it, we've got actually several studies showing that, that you know, pitted against animal protein for, for muscle hypertrophy, muscle growth, all of that, that um, if we provide the same amount of protein, um, we get the same results in terms of muscle growth. There's no, no difference at all. Um, in terms of, uh, of other impacts, it's way better. Uh, I mean, it causes less inflammation, less, less oxidative stress. Uh, it has, um, a, you know, contains fiber and, you know, with foods that are packaged with, you know, plant foods that are packaged with protein come with all of these protective components like phytochemicals and antioxidants and sterols and stanols and all sorts of things that are, promote health. And, and whereas animal products come with things that tend to have more negative impacts so I, I, I think, and, and I, yeah, I can't tell you the number of athletes I've met that tell me that their recovery, when they switch from an omnivorous to a plant-based diet, improves dramatically. And I think it's because it's a more anti-inflammatory diet and a diet with, you know, that promotes less oxidative stress and so forth. So I, I actually think it has huge, huge advantages. Yep. What about you, Corey? I also think plant protein has massive advantages on the environmental front. And when I talk about the environment, it's really important to note that the environmental crisis we're living in is just as much a social crisis. It's just as much a social crisis. Our environment impacts us, and it's disproportionately impacting minority communities, more vulnerable countries, and so forth. So those impacts are not evenly distributed. So we're in a position of immense privilege to be so far removed from that mentally, geographically, in time. Um, it, you know, this reminds me of a paper in 2018, I believe it was called the opportunity cost of animal agriculture on food losses. And what they found out, this was a paper from the United States. So it just discussed agriculture in the United States, but it looked at how much food we could produce with nutritionally equivalent or comparable plant-based alternatives to the major meat categories, beef, chicken, 
to eggs, and they cited eggs as being the least resource-intensive meat product. And what they found was you could produce 20 times more comparable plant-based alternatives to beef and two times more plant-based comparable nutrition-wise to eggs. And if the United States went 100% plant-based, they could feed an additional 350 million people. Think about that. The United States alone, right now, there's over 800 million people in the world who are, who are starving. 45% of all child deaths globally are related to starvation. And we are so privileged to be able to make such an inefficient use of our food resources. And this inefficiency is more than all food losses is what they found. We waste, we lose about 30% of our food due to leaky supply chains and spoilage. If we were to go 100% plant-based, that would create more of an impact on food security than reducing all food losses. So it's major. The plant protein is certainly superior from an environmental footprint perspective and a social footprint perspective. Great. Thank you. Brenda, because they knew it, we had a dietitian on a few people actually wrote in questions in advance. So I'd like to ask a couple of those if it's okay with sure, you. Sure, absolutely. Thank you. And the first one is for Jean. And she says it, she wants to know that she hears that seniors should increase their protein intake to avoid sarcopenia. But she's also heard about the risk of oxalate in foods like beans, quinoa, chia, and soy foods, which are also high protein sources. So she wants to know what does that leave for her if she's a senior with limited mobility and energy? Oh, that's interesting. And, and it's true, oxalates can be a concern for some people, especially if you're prone to kidney stones. Um, but for most people, you really don't have to worry about oxalates in foods. And a lot of our food preparation techniques can help to reduce the oxalates that are naturally present in foods as well. Even cooking can reduce oxalates in foods. So, and you know, I think that, that probably the most important thing that people can do is include a variety of foods in their diet, not rely on, you know, the same, you know, spinach in their smoothies, spinach in their salad, spinach in their, you know, you want to be eating a, a, a diverse range of greens. You want to eat a diverse range of beans and seeds and other foods and use food preparation techniques that helps to reduce anti-nutrients like soaking and sprouting and fermenting and all of those and even cooking, boiling and so forth. Uh, so I think that's the most important thing. And of course, if you are at high risk for, for oxalate stones, uh, calcium oxalate stones, then you're going to need to, you know, take it a step further. But for the average, reasonably healthy individual, that's all you really need to do. Thank and you. If I could just add to that, mom is promoting to eat diversity, right? This is so important because agrodiversity, the diversity of crops we grow, contributes to biodiversity, as the United as the United Nations describes it. And right now we have we're growing, we, I think we get most of our calories from just 12 plants and five animals, whereas there's 350,000 edible plants on planet Earth, and we're currently cultivating about 150 of them. So promoting diversity builds in resilience to the crops we have, right? If we're only growing one kind of crop, and then they suffer from an event such as drought, pest, disease, it gets amplified up the food chain. And it's really an affront to our food security. So if we promote diverse crops and then a climatic event or a, a disease event, a pest event occurs, we have some, some reinforcement, some extra security there with our diverse crops that we're growing in our country. So I just think, I just want to throw that in because what she's saying is not just important for the health of our bodies, but the health of our ecosystems and food security. What are the 12 most common crops? I'm guessing one of them's potatoes. Yeah, I believe it's right. I don't know them all off the top of my head, but rice um, is certainly huge. They're huge. There's a few grains. Wheat is another one. I think we get 60% of our calories from wheat, corn, and I can't 
quite and remember rice. the other one. And rice, that's right. So a vast majority from just a few, right? Kasifa is in that 12, I believe, around the world. It's quite popular. But eat diversity, right? Don't just eat rice at your meals. Eat quinoa and amaranth and camut berries and barley. I mean, there's just so much out there we could have so much fun with. So I really encourage people to just explore, right? And try new things, new plant foods, because it's good for you and the planet. And, or, and, uh, or yeah, say, even if they don't try new plant foods, just try plant foods. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> and Corey's the king of trying new plant foods. I just can never I wrap my brain around everything he's trying, the roasts he makes, the the you know the the flatbreads and the uh, the pumpkin seed scrambled eggs and you name it it's amazing he's he's very creative in the kitchen <laughs> I really try to cater to the palates of my friends and family that I live with at home and I see on a regular basis so I'm always really trying to make these healthy innovative recipes and products <laughs> or whatever I might see online and inspire me to cater to them right? Get their foot in the door. Maybe it'll inspire them to try something at home and include more plants into their diet. I think that's such a powerful tool we have in the animal rights and the nutrition movement and the environmental movement. It's our social influence is so powerful. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Brenda, another viewer wrote in a question. Her name is Judy. And she said, I need to, occasionally I need to supplement calcium if I'm not getting enough from vegetables or other plant-based foods, since I'm sometimes limited on the amount by gut issues. I have read that a magnesium supplement should be taken to counterbalance calcium supplement intake. Uh, Dr. Cooperman from Consumer Lab recommends separating minerals by a couple of hours each. However, an Australian nutritionist states that calcium needs magnesium to transport to bones and teeth, and they should be taken in the same time at a one-to-one -one ratio of 300 milligrams each. So each is properly absorbed and there's no risk of magnesium deficiency. Taking before bed promotes a good night's sleep. You have said that Calcium from fortified plant mix is considered a supplement as well. So maybe you can comment on calcium, magnesium, take them together. Yeah, I, I would agree with the Australian that, you know, take them together just before bed, uh, the ratio, all of that sounds good to me. Uh, and, and in terms of, we don't consider necessarily um, fortified non-dairy milks as a supplement, Rather, we think of them as a food that's rich in calcium and that can help you if you're if you're really striving to meet that, say you need 1200 milligrams a day because you're over 50 as a woman or over 70 as a man, uh, then it, to meet 12, to get 1200 milligrams a day from whole plant foods can be really challenging. And if you have osteoporosis and you really want to hit those targets, including a couple of servings of non-dairy uh, beverage, like an unsweetened uh, soy or, 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 you know, cashew or oat or whatever kind of milk can really help get you there easily because most of them have three to four or 450 milligrams per cup. And so it just, it, it's, a, it's actually a very reasonable way to get there. And the, the milks are also fortified with B12 and vitamin D. And so it, it helps boost a number of nutrients. Terrific. Corey, you say that only 10% of agricultural land is cropland and the rest is used for grazing animals and it's not productive to crops. So with a growing population, would it be unwise to not utilize it? But also if, again, I, I don't want people to raise animals, but what I hear is like, well, you know, what are they going to do with all the animals? And can, can those farmers become, you know, tell us the vegan vision, in other words. So that's the old adage. This is something one of my college instructors said in a sustainability class. Only 10% of agricultural land is cropland. The rest is marginal, they call it. They call it marginal land. And um, I, I really, it bothers me classifying land as marginal like that because that land was somebody's home once upon a time. And we come in and we classify it as this and that. Um, so I, I really don't like that term marginal land. It's Marginal in its agricultural capacity is what they say. But I disagree. Um, Joseph Poor, for example, he's the author of the most cited paper on the environmental impacts of food consumption. Um, he, he said recently that if we were to transition to a plant-based diet, we would reduce the amount of cropland we require by 20%. 
Uh, so that's a massive amount. That's a, an absolutely massive amount. Livestock proponents, they often point out how pasture um, is marginal and you can't grow anything on it. So it's this efficient use. Uh, in reality, you can grow some things on certain pasture like, pea, like peas and legumes. Um, but yeah, what they're talking about is it, it's grasslands. And in North America, especially United States cattle exist almost ubiquitously. And of course, earlier I said, they are threatened, beautiful, ecologically valuable ecosystems. Here in British Columbia, we live in, uh, we have semi-arid grasslands. About four decades after cattle were introduced to BC, 90% of the grasslands in the Southern interior were overgrazed. And folks in the 1920s were describing that area as a dust bowl. We, we completely overuse that land, and we don't know what the ecological function of these grasslands were prior to cattle grazing. So we really don't have that reference point. Um, and, of course, we could just grow so much more crops than uh, and feed people directly with those crops than by feeding them to animals. So that would be my vision for sure. Of course, this is a transition. If we were to completely remove cattle from the landscape, immediately, there would be cascading impacts to the environment. Because what we essentially did here was remove bison from the landscape and replace bison with cattle. Prior to Western settlement, there were about 30 to 60 million bison that roamed the, the plains in the, in the Great Plains and the prairies in the United States and Canada. Today, there's 110 million cattle and they say that we're mimicking bison behavior with cattle on the landscape. And it's true. You have to have some grazing there present, right? But also what we did, not just removed the bison, we removed the predator from the landscape. And of course, ecologists describe the role of predators in ecosystems through trophic cascades. Predators <clears throat> uh, mediate herbivore populations through preying on them. But that's just the beginning. Those trophic cascades, and, and they mediate those populations because if those populations get too big, it has impacts on the vegetation, which then have impacts on the soil. The soils could get exposed to sun, it could erode, it can impact all kinds of things. And you remove that predator, what they say is it simplifies the environment. Right. So, so it simplifies the environment also in the plant communities. What we've done is we've removed a lot of the predators. Right? We've removed that top down force in the ecosystem, replaced the big herbivores, the bison, with cattle, <clears throat> and then we remove them from the environment. So natural ecosystems would have the bison roaming the Great Plains, a predator would eat them, and there'd be all this biomass in the ground. <clears throat> and early explorers or early ecologists who were surveying the lands would call this, they, they would describe it as like this bastion of biodiversity. Here would come the vultures and there'd be all of these microbes and, and insects and other animals coming to feed off of the bison, distributing the nutrients from the bison across the landscape, really fueling the ecosystem. But now we graze cattle. Uh, a wolf comes and nabs a cattle, a cow, you compensate the rancher. Um, they kill wolves constantly. There's this campaign to kill wolves, to kill bears, grizzly bears, black bears, even elk, other, other herbivores. There's campaigns to cull, is what they call it, to cull the, the elk, because there's this perception that elk might transmit disease or they're <clears throat> competing for forage with cattle. And so we're really surveying the land thinking, well, how can we best raise cattle? Not what's best for the ecosystem, but what they're telling the public is that, oh, we're mimicking bison populations. And that's true. They're trying to. They're, they're not mimicking bison perfectly by any stretch of the imagination. And there's a lot more pressure from cattle on the landscape than there was from bison. Bison, by the way, used to migrate long distances, whereas cattle are kept within a certain range from the ranch, of course. And then we're removing them and putting them into our wastewater treatment system. So it's not a direct, it's not a direct mimicking, but we can't just remove them either. 
we, we have to slowly replace cattle again with bison or, or something and reintroduce predators if we want our ecosystems to be resilient. Um, so it's it's a long road ahead. If we do, it would be a slow transition. Um, but first and foremost, I don't want to see another cattle slaughtered, a, a cow slaughtered. Um, it just breaks my heart how we treat these animals. So the transition I want to see is a humane one. But um, that would be my perspective, what I would want to see. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Brenda, to switch gears for a bit, could you talk a little bit about athletes and if they have special needs? Is plant protein adequate? Can they get enough protein on a plant-based diet, good enough to not only build muscle, but maintain muscle? And do they require protein powders? Yeah, well, first of all, athletes do, as I mentioned before, require uh, more protein per kilogram body weight or per pound body weight. They need 1.2 to 2 grams per kilogram body weight uh, for most athletes, for most competitive athletes. And, and um, it's, you know, if you think of a, you know, an 80 kilogram athlete, perhaps it might need 120 grams of protein per day. But if that athlete was consuming 3,500 calories, which would be very typical, uh, that would be less than 14% of their total calories. And that's, you know, just par for the course for any plant-based eater. So it's not as difficult as what a lot of people think. And, and certainly they do need to get enough. You know, there's some amino acids that are especially important for athletes, like branch chain amino acids, like, like you know, leucine and other branch chain amino acids. And and so those amino acids we're getting more from, I mean, they're more concentrated in animal products, but we can still get plenty from, from legumes and seeds and nuts and grains, and especially, you know, seitan and all of those kinds of things can provide uh, plenty of, of branch chain uh, amino acids. Now you asked if, um, if they require a protein powder and the answer is no, nobody requires a protein powder. Um, that's not to say that a protein power couldn't be an option or may not be helpful for some athletes who have especially high needs, uh, who are doing really intense training and who are having a hard time eating enough. Um, it, it, it may be of, of value for them. But if you are using and I, you know, I, I like my husband likes to have these smoothies and I, I like to to make them reasonable sources of protein for him. And, but what I do is I add hemp seeds and frozen peas and, and a soy milk and, you know, just different things that are um, more whole or very, very minimally processed uh, foods rather than uh, something like a, a protein powder. But if you do, uh, you're determined to have a protein powder, you want to be choosing, you know, a mix of of proteins. I think, you know, soy, pumpkin, hemp, pea, you know, are all good options. But what came as a really big surprise to me when I was researching the amino acid content of these different uh, sources, concentrated protein sources, the one that came up number one for, for protein and for leucine especially was corn protein. And the second was potato protein which was really surprising. So, you know, these foods aren't as concentrated in proteins, but if you extract the protein from them, the amino acid profile is actually really impressive. Um, so, you know, and then the next thing you wanna do is look at the ingredient list. So you wanna be really wary of protein powders that contain a lot of fillers and additives and preservatives and sugars and thickeners and colors and, you know, all that sort of stuff. You want to make sure you're not getting with your protein powder, lead and arsenic and cadmium and mercury and you know all of the pesticides and so on. There's actually um, a group called the Clean Label Project, and 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 they you know they they'll provide you with sort of a, a list of which protein powders are clean and which aren't so clean. Uh, there are some vegan protein powders. Uh, that I think have actually done a pretty good job of it. Uh, and then there are some third party certification stamps on labels to show that the product have, has been screened for safety. All that having been said, very few people actually need protein powders. <laughs> right. And if, if uh, they did desire one, is there a brand you might be able to recommend? 
Well, there's one called Complement that is uh, a vegan, um, I think it's called Complement, right? Yeah, and um, it's, it, it's a wonderful, uh, ethical, clean, vegan product. Terrific, thank you. So Corey, why do you think that animal agriculture needs to be included in the discussion about water scarcity? Well, water scarcity, it's a dangerous problem. A 2020 study published by Nature Sustainability, a journal of nature, one of the most well-respected journal publishers in the world, assessed the primary users of river water in the Western United States, that entire region, and found that the irrigation of animal feed crops, and in particular, specifically, cattle feed crops, was the largest user. And they insinuated that the beef and dairy industry are the leading drivers, the leading drivers of water shortages and fish endangerment in the Western United States. And of course, fish are such a precious resource. They provide sustenance for indigenous peoples. They feed wildlife. They provide nutrients to the land. They're keystone species and aquatic ecosystems. We can't under we can't undervalue fish in our aquatic ecosystems. And just let that sink in for a moment. They were the biggest user was animal feed crops. We're growing almonds. We're growing all this other stuff out there. It was cattle feed crops. We're also growing crops for all kinds of other animals. But it just goes to show the inefficient inefficiency there, especially when drought in the Western United States can force ranchers to cull their own cattle as a result. It's quite disturbing. Agriculture is confidently the largest user of freshwater resources in the world. You know, we often attack industrial practices such as fracking, which uses about 70 to 140 billion gallons of water annually. Fracking is a method of extracting oil and gas from rock. Um, our home water use, for example, makes up about 4% of humanity's total water use. It's a fair chunk indeed. We should certainly uh, not water our lawn so much, take shorter showers. I agree with all of that. But agriculture is by far the largest water usage in the world. It's responsible from anywhere between 70 to 85% of our total use in any given year. That's tens of trillions of gallons annually. So if there's one thing a consumer can do to minimize that impact, it would be to choose or trend towards, slant towards low water use foods. Because the relative reduction and water use is massive, and it's on a daily basis. So I really think animal agriculture is a huge, it's a massive user of water, an inefficient one at that. You know, the BC Assembly of First Nations here, they, they call water the lifeblood of Mother Earth. And we're treating it with very little respect, bleeding her dry for inefficient reason. We don't evaluate water properly for its true value on the market. It's not a commodity like that to be traded on the marketplace like bottled water might be, but we're paying for convenience with the bottle of water. Agriculture users, they get to use that water for next to nothing. Yeah. And we don't see that reflect, we don't see the true cost reflected in the food prices. So that is very true. So there's a question from a live viewer named Judy, and she wants to know how many recipes are in the new book, and do you guys each have a favorite? Okay. Um, I I think there's about 30, but I'd actually have to count. <laughs> um, Corey, do you have a favorite? Yeah, I've, I have many favorites. I mean, those chocolate cookies are amazing, uh, <laughs> but one of my go-tos is the chickpea smash. I love that one. It's so good. It's so easy. And it's easy to take for lunches or share with friends when you go on a, on a hike or anything like that. So I, I really like that one. Of course, Visanto loves the gado gado. And I've got a second that it's a really good recipe. All of our recipes, by the way, uh, were tested by professional recipe testers. And we went back and forth until every single one got a five-star rating. Yes. It was quite the process indeed, <laughs> but they're all, sure. quite all quite delicious. I, I love the, the big bowl. I love bowls. I just think they're so much fun. You have your, 
you know, your base of, of, you know, sweet potato or quinoa or something, and then all the steamed veggies and then your protein, whatever, beans or tofu or wh whatever you're putting, and then some sort of delicious sauce. And I always like to put a few sprouts on top and make it really pretty. And so I love bowls. And I think the, the um, uh, peanut edamame noodle salad is great. I love the carrot cookies myself. Um, so anyway, there, there's lots of fun recipes, definitely. <laughs> nice. Where did this obsession with protein come from? And are there any side effects that, is it possible to get too much protein? And if so, are there side effects to that? Yeah, so, you know, the obsession with protein, uh, it, actually, I would say stemmed from uh, very, very early concerns about malnutrition. Uh, so, you know, way back when in the, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, hunger and malnutrition really were the, the most serious public health uh, problems that we had. And, and it, we had a lot of nutritional deficiency diseases and protein was, was one of them. And so, you know, the government ended up uh, subsidizing and supporting uh, animal products to ensure that people got enough of the nutrients that seemed to be lacking. And it, it kind of placed a halo on those foods and on protein itself. And uh, protein is super important. I mean, it's, it's necessary for structure, function, for energy, for it just uh, for our bones, for you name it. Protein is a really important nutrient. Um, but we, as I mentioned, don't need as much as what we often think we do. And my own personal opinion about can we get too much is it's actually probably not very easy to get too much from whole plant foods. I think if you eat whatever range of whole plant foods you eat, you're not going to get too much protein. Most of them have somewhere between 10 and 30% of calories from protein. But, and, and I think that's within a fairly safe range. But if you're eating a diet like a, you know, a very animal heavy diet, um, such as a very low carbohydrate diet, low carbohydrate diets are generally by definition, fairly high animal food diets, because all plant foods contain carbohydrates, uh, you know, all whole plant foods and, and animal products contain none except for milk, of course, with lactose. Uh, or very, very little. And, and so in low carb diets, animal products tend to be featured more heavily. And we know um, uh, we have unbelievable amount of the evidence that eating too much animal protein is not a good idea. In fact, there was a, a study in 2020 that showed we would have a 10% drop in overall mortality if we replace animal protein just 3% of calories from animal protein, that's about 60 calories with plant protein. And, and so, you know, we, and, and the studies are so consistent that replacing animal protein with plant protein provides an advantage. In fact, there was a study from Japan, and this is a study of close to 70,000 or more people, that mortality dropped 34% when just 3% of calories from red meat were replaced with plant protein and 46% when 3% of calories from processed meat were replaced with plant protein. And there's another study that you've probably heard of, this one by Levine in 2014, that actually looked at people eating at least 20% of calories from protein, and they had increased risk of mortality and of all of the diseases, heart disease and cancer and diabetes and all of those things. And it was you know, pretty dramatically higher but that, um, that increase in risk was, was pretty much wiped out if that 20% came from plants and not from animals. So, uh, so generally, we see increased risk with animal protein, decreased risk with plant protein. Sounds good. Marie, what can we do to minimize our water use through our diet? Yeah, so our dietary, our dietary choices, they are profoundly the most impactful tool we can consider when minimizing our water footprint. You know, per weight, though, know that cheese and nuts, farmed fish, prawns, rice, lamb, beef, and poultry all use the most water. Barley, soy milk, root vegetables, tofu, corn, peas, and legumes use the least. Uh, 
nuts was at the top there. Typically, a serving size of nuts is about one ounce. Serving size of cheese is about one and a half to two ounces, whereas a six ounce steak is common. So we've got to think about this in relative terms. Eat nuts sparingly. You probably already do. So when you look at the most water intensive foods, you find that they're mostly animal products. And when you look at the least intensive foods, they're mostly plant products. So slant plant is what I really think, uh, especially when we think in terms of protein sources, minimizing our water use in our diet. Uh, beef from dairy cows uses a lot more water than non-dairy cows. They live a lot longer, not non-dairy cows. Uh, so to be fair, I like to compare tofu with non-dairy beef. Tofu requires almost um, 150 liters or so of fresh water per kilogram of product. Non-dairy beef requires over 1,400 liters of water per kilogram of product on, an, on average. So that's almost 10 times over nine times more water. That's almost a thousand percent more water to produce beef than tofu. And, you know, people often opt for farmed fish as a healthy option, but farmed fish requires over 3,500 liters of water per kilogram. Just astounding amounts of water, 23 times more than tofu. It's a lot. Poultry uses a moderate amount of water, uh, by no means the most intensive of the water users. Uh, water users. It's about 660 liters of water per kilogram of product, which is four times more than tofu. So just switching from poultry to tofu, you can minimize that water footprint by four times, fourfold. It's massive. So just little changes in our diet, slanting towards plants, eating more of those low resource intensive plant foods can really make a dramatic decrease in your water footprint. Terrific. Brenda Clark would like to know if the recipes in the book are SOS free, meaning free of salt, oil, and sugar. Well, you know, I thought they all were, and I think mine were. <laughs> I think we had a couple that have oil as, a, as an optional ingredient. Um, and it's mostly just for flavoring, like in the tofu fingers that are air fried, it's a little tiny bit of sesame oil, I think. But it's, you know, certainly not a critical part of the recipe. I would say 90% of the recipes are. Now, I should say they're, they're free of, of sugar and oil mostly but not necessarily of salt. So again, uh, the, um, uh, some of them have tamari and things like that that are salty seasonings. So, but of course those are things that don't, you know, you can, you can modify uh, to go with your diet. If you prefer not to use them, you certainly don't have to. Great. Well, let's talk about soy now because uh, one of the viewers is saying to tofu is high in estrogens. So maybe tell the truth about soy and if it's a good option for uh, women that can't breastfeed to feed a soy formula. Okay. So yeah. Um, first of all, I, I think soy has unfairly received a lot of negative press. And I think we probably have more research on soy than any single other food out there. Um, the estrogens in soy are called phytoestrogens, and, and they're selective estrogen receptor modulators. So when they, uh, for example, um, attach to an estrogen receptor site, in some cases, they act like weak estrogens, and in some cases, they act more like anti-estrogens, as they do, in, it seems, in, in uh, breast tissue. And so that, you know, for breast cancer, for example, the studies overwhelmingly suggest that they not only um, uh, probably reduce risk, especially if you consume soy as an adolescent or a child, um, but they also seem to reduce risk of, of recurrence of the breast cancer and risk of dying from the breast cancer. And so the estrogens in soy are, are extremely um, weak relative to human estrogen. And so in many cases, they can actually keep human estrogens off via estrogen receptor sites, which can be an advantage. And it can also be an advantage in terms of prostate cancer for men. Uh, can, it can be an advantage in terms of, uh, well, the protein can in terms of uh, cardiovascular risk. And, and certainly um, in terms of kidney disease, 
soy has a lot less impact than animal proteins. And, and so it's, it, you know, and, and the other thing is for symptoms of menopause, uh, there are a number of studies that show soy reduces symptoms of menopause. And I know when I went through menopause, I'm 64 years old, but when I went through menopause, I really didn't have hardly any symptoms at all. I felt warm once in a while, but not, not sweaty or hot, just slightly warm. And that was it. And it, it, it was very, you know, very quick to go through it. And, and it wasn't really much of an issue. Um, now, in terms of soy for, for formula, I know a lot of people that can't breastfeed, if they're vegan, they wonder, well, what can I feed my baby? There, there's actually a couple of formulas out of Europe that are non-soy formulas that are entirely vegan. And one is rice-based, one is sort of rice and pea-based. Uh, they're not very um, easy to get in North America. They're uh, kind of expensive because they have to be shipped. In North America, there is a, you know, organic uh, soy-based uh, uh, formula, and then there are several non-organic, non-GMO uh, soy-based formulas. And the American Academy of Pediatrics says soy formula is safe for term infants. Um, and it doesn't affect their sexual development, their thyroid function, their brain function, their immune system. We've got a lot of studies on this. Uh, so generally, they're, they're thought to be safe. My biggest concern about soy formula is that it's higher in aluminum than breast milk or cow's milk formula for that matter. Um, it's, it's thought that the amount of aluminum there is safe for full-term infants, but it's not safe for preterm for preterm infants that weigh less than four pounds. It's not safe for babies with compromised kidneys. It's not safe for babies with congenital hypothyroidism. So, you know, it's in those babies, you might want to use a hypoallergenic formula. That's an, an amino acid based formula or try to get a formula from Europe or use, um, you know, donor breast milk, although that can be very expensive, but there are options. Yeah, that's what I was to ask you about donor milk. Hey, Corey, one of the live viewers named Lori said, is there anywhere to get more information from you? Do you have a YouTube or social media presence anywhere? Please check out our website, plantpoweredprotein.com. And perhaps one day, yeah, I'll put out more on social media. So stay tuned. Yeah. So yeah. Your, your mom's an avid athlete. And I know that she can do her age and pushups. You're obviously younger than her, but are you as avid of an athlete as Brenda? I try, but gosh, is it hard to keep up with mom? I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and Corey, you might want to give your email address just if yeah. somebody really wants to touch bases with you. Uh, email address is on the website. So please Perfect. check that out. I think it's Corey Davis at plantpoweredprotein.com or Perfect. Something like that. Yeah. So I, I don't know if you've watched the show before, Corey, and since you're a first time guest, you have to get the question that every guest gets and Brenda can answer it too. What do you eat in a day? Well, for me, I eat diversity. I, I, I must eat something different every day. I really like um, like a cooked cereal for breakfast. So sometimes I do muesli. Sometimes I do camu berries. Sometimes I do amaranth, which is one of my real favorites. And I like doing mix sometimes, always throwing a little bit of seeds some prunes some fruit. So delicious. For lunch, it's grab and go, whatever I could get. That chickpea smash is fantastic. I always like to keep a lot of chopped veggies in my fridge. So when I'm grabbing my lunch, it's boom, grab a bunch of veggies and some hummus and off I go. Uh, and for dinner, it's different every time. So right now I have my in-laws staying with me who aren't vegetarian, but I have been cooking for them and they've been cooking for me vegan dinners. And, and in fact, they love the vegan dinners so much they're going to carry on this tradition. And so just sharing food is so impactful, but they're from Asia. So I get a lot of real good, authentic Chinese food for dinner. And oh, is it good? Nice. <laughs> Nice. Brenda, uh, someone's asking if you're going to do any future cruises. Oh, you know what? I, I was asked to go on the cruise this year and I declined because I was still a little bit nervous about it. Um, but I think I probably will uh, agree to do one again in the future. Thanks for asking. Well, you know, they I, I just I was at a meetup Sunday with a lot of people that got COVID on that ship, just so you know. 
Okay, that was my concern. One of my concerns. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was a nurse and her husband, and she was telling about all the people that succumbed, even uh, even uh, this. Year. So maybe wow. you made the right decision. Yeah. Well, this is great, guys. And this book is called Plant Powered Protein. The link is in the chat in the show notes if you want to check it out. There's some beautiful pictures. Like, look at these cookies. Corey, do you actually make the recipes though? Do oh, yeah. Oh, you <laughs> bet I do. You bet I do. <laughs> That's great. Well, congrats. Will this be the first of many books together as a family? I'm I'm not sure, but I kind of hope so. (laughs) Me too. Yeah. Yeah. I hope this is the first. Yeah. Not the last. (laughs) Thank you guys so much. I wish you every success with the Uh, book. And thank you both for what you do for the planet, the animals and human health. Thank you so much, AJ. It's been a pleasure. Such a blast hanging out with you today. Do you know, Corey, you have like literally the nicest mother on the the planet. I I do. She she (laughs) is just the most competent person, empathetic. Uh, She's always seen the best in me, even at my worst. She's always uplifted me and her positive energy can uplift anybody. I, I feel so lucky. She's like you, a mom. vegan mother, Teresa. I swear. Oh, <laughs> oh you guys, thank yeah. you. I'm I'm so so proud of you, Corey, and I'm so grateful to you, AJ, for all you're doing uh, to make the world a better place. And thanks so much for having us. And anytime you, I mean, you can come on anytime. You come on every oh, month if you want. You. People love for you to answer <laughs> questions. Well, oh, thank you both thank so you. much. Thanks so much, AJ. AJ. Have a great rest of your day. You too. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back earlier tomorrow at 10 a.m. Pacific time for two old salts. Those are Dr. McDougall's worlds. They're going to talk nutrition, Dr. John McDougall and Dr. Clarence Grimm. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.